Good morning, and thank you for joining us again for our Bible study. I want to continue in the book of Colossians. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 2 as we continue to go just paragraph by paragraph through this epistle. And I trust it's been a blessing to you. I have thoroughly enjoyed this study and have found it extremely challenging. As we pick up this morning, let me bring up to a, a story that I was reading about just recently. There was an event that occurred, and it was on the regular news, ABC and all over, and their opening headline to this story I found extremely interesting. It said this, to anyone that met him, Dr. William Hammond was undoubtedly impressive. Not only was he a commercial airline pilot, but he was one of the nation's top cardiologists. This individual, they go on and talk about how he not only had a position flying planes, but he was also holding a position as an educator researcher in one of the major hospitals there in uh, Michigan. And yet this fellow, for all of his business and, and all he was doing and his uh, speaking around the country, he was found out to be a fraud. People did a little bit of investigating, and they found out that he had never received a medical degree. In fact, he had only gone to two years of college. They also found out that even though he claimed he had 15 years of medical practice, he had none. And yet he had been put in this exalted position where he was teaching other doctors in these seminars across the nation. As a result of his, his deception, he ended up being fired by the hospital, stopped having all these uh, different seminars and conferences, and as well, the airlines, they got rid of him too. It reminded me of another true story that there was a movie made of a number of years ago. The movie some of you probably saw, Catch Me If You Can. It was the story of this fellow by the name of Frank Abagnale, who was an individual who in his career, his career was being an imposter, in, in pretending to be all kinds of different professionals. In fact, he pretended to be a pilot for several period uh, years. He be, uh, was a medical supervisor. He presented himself as a lawyer, a teacher. Even after he was arrested, he escaped U.S. Uh, prison by taking on the persona of one of the prison officers there for the, Bureau, uh, for the Bureau of Prisons and got himself out of prison for several more weeks. The fellow was an absolute expert at presenting himself to be something that he wasn't. Paul's writing to the Colossians, and his concern is that there are people in the church who are presenting themselves in a false way. They are saying that they are professional Bible teachers, when in fact they really are not. He's going to end up calling them false teachers, calling them heretics. Individuals who have come into the church presenting themselves as scholarly, as experts in spiritual matters, and in reality, they're not. So Paul has to write in, in chapter 2, the bulk of the chapter is all about warning them, cautioning his readers, his friends there in Colossae, about these false teachers and what they're going to do. We've looked at it already. He says, be careful, lest any beguile you or delude you with their reasoning and with enticing words. Beware, lest any kidnap you, take you away from the truth. He's written to them, let no man, and we're going to look at this section, stop letting these people be judges over you. And he even says, be careful that they don't steal your reward. These people were dangerous. They were affecting the church. And Paul was extremely concerned. And in the middle of his concern, he pauses and puts in a two-sentence phrase or two-verse phrase that brings us back to the main theme of the book. Let's go back to verse 9 where we were last week. For in Christ, in him, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. 
You are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. In the middle of his warning, he says, wait a minute, just remember this. Jesus Christ is to be preeminent. He is to be exalted. Don't, don't listen to these teachers, what they say, unless they're talking about exalting Jesus Christ. And there's two reasons why Christ needs to be exalted. He is completely God. That is, he is the creator. And secondly, as we talked about last week, he's completed you. He has worked a work in your heart. And so Paul, then, as we looked at last week, he went on in verses 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, talking about all that Christ has done for us and how he has completed us, how he has, the idea, remember, is to make sure that the ship is completely outfitted for sailing. Well, Jesus Christ has outfitted us for our spiritual journey to heaven as well as our earthly journey in the meantime. And he talked about all that Christ has done, how he has put off the body of our sin, how that we are risen with him, how that we were quickened or made alive by Jesus Christ, how he has forgiven us all of our trespasses, how he blotted out our spiritual debts by nailing them to the cross. He talked about how he spoiled or defeated all of our spiritual enemies. Christ has done all this. He has been everything that we need and provided all that we need. And yet, all that Christ has done, it still didn't take away the danger of these false teachers that were still in Colossae. And so he's writing to them to basically beware of the snakes in the grass. Beware of these individuals that could cause you serious harm. Some of you know exactly what we're talking about, being aware of the snakes. You've traveled with us to Arizona on different missions trips. And you remember that multiple times we are told in our orientation meeting there that if we are walking around the grounds, if we're on a hike, we have to beware. There are rattlesnakes around. And if we see a rattlesnake, what do they tell us to do? They tell us to back away, go get them, and they'll take care of it. Not to dabble with it, not to fool with it, not to toy with it because it is extremely dangerous. Well, Paul's writing and saying, beware of the snakes in the grass, the false teachers. They are bringing doctrines that are extremely dangerous. And after he's talked about some of the dangers they pose, and then verses 9 through 14, 15, talking about what Christ has done, he returns to identify specifically the major dangers that these fellows are bringing into the church. And he focuses on three of their major teachings, their false teachings that were prevalent then, that were also prevalent through all of church history, and are no doubt still a problem today. So I'm going to call them, these three ideas, the different isms that are dangerous for us. The first one that he talks about is he says, beware of the ism of legalism. He mentions that in verse 16. Let no man, therefore, because of all that Christ has done, let no man, therefore, judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath day, which are a shadow of things to come. But the body is of Christ. What's he saying there? What's he talking about? Let's back up. Let's remind ourselves of some facts. That although it is important we have standards of purity, that we have standards for conduct, which we're not debating that is appropriate, that is proper. The legalist does something different with it. They say that those standards or even some of those good things, they are required of you to put great effort into it so you can gain God's favor. In fact, what they do is they demand that you conform to 
their standards, to their rules, to what they have set up. And usually it's set up by some person or some group of people based upon their experiences of traditionalism or based upon their cultural experiences or observances for the Jews who were coming into the church and were giving their Judaistic thinking, the Judaizers if you would, they were using their Jewish traditions and saying you who are now born again Gentiles you have to follow these traditions or you're not going to be spiritual basically what they were saying is this if you believe in Jesus plus conform to our rules and regulations then you will become godly by contrast they would say if you don't keep our rules you are not godly that's a typical legalist And so Paul is saying, be careful of these people, because in the church of Colossae, they would deal with issues like the meats and the drinks. And he names them specifically as some of those things that they were saying the believers need to do or need to observe. Well, we understand that what he's probably referring to is what is in Leviticus 23, talking about the dietary laws. That certain foods were kosher. They were clean foods. Certain foods were not clean. And so the list you can go through and you can read about that. And you can understand that the Jews had these regulations and rules that were put in place. Some things that you and I would not like. I mean, seafoods for the most part were absolutely off the menu. Me, I would love them. But for my wife, that would be a, a, a good thing to follow the dietary rules since she has an allergy to seafoods. And so what happened is this whole dietary law wasn't based on preference. It was based upon identifying yourselves as the people of God. As the people of God, you do certain things to identify, to show that you are, you are following me. You do the symbolism of, we talked about last week's circumcision. You also have a certain style and, and code of diets and foods, which, by the way, were not only just by choice, but were also designed to provide protection for the people. Because in those days, in, a, in that age, they didn't have the same way to refrigerate, to, to preserve the way we do. And so some of the foods that were put off the menu were foods that could create more of a physical issue uh, quicker than other dietary foods. There's an excellent book, Pastor and I were talking about it in his series on numbers. It's a book that came out a number of years ago. It's called None of These Diseases. It's written by a medical doctor and talks about the hygiene and the benefits that were put into the code of the law that provided for the needs of the people of Israel in a medical, hygienic sense, and even in a dietary sense. So these foods were restrictions were put in place as an identification of the covenant people for their own personal benefit. But now all of a sudden, people were saying you need to abide by them. Paul would write and remind the readers in Colossae that when Jesus came, Jesus didn't put that same emphasis upon dietary regulations. In fact, Jesus talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees who were really big on the dietary rules, he said to them, when he called them together, he said, listen to me. Everyone, and understand this, nothing outside of a person can defile them by going into them. You're not spiritually defiled by the food you eat. Rather, it is what comes out of the person, their words, their attitude, their heart, that defiles them. And after he left the crowd and entered into the house, the disciples said, explain this. Are you so dull? Do you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into the heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In this, Jesus declared all foods were clean. 
And so Jesus didn't put an emphasis on these dietary foods, nor do we read about it after Christ. We read in the book of Acts that there was this transition away from the dietary law. You remember the story. The story in Acts 10 when Peter is up on the rooftop and he's praying and all of a sudden he gets this transvision that he's told to eat all these foods that are on this sheet that comes down from heaven. They are unclean animals by the Old Testament code of diet. And he says, no, I can't. But then God says, whatever you call unclean, don't call, uh, what, what, what I call clean, don't you call unclean. And God rebukes him for that. And this reoccurred, this vision repeatedly until Peter got the idea, dietary law and regulations, that's been taken off the menu, if you would. Anything is now available. We go further in the book of Acts. And when they had the Jerusalem council and they're writing to the Gentiles and they're saying what they should do, what they should observe, it never says that they are supposed to follow the dietary regulations. The concern was, be careful of things with, with, uh, without bloodletting. Be careful of things offered to the idols. Be careful of those things that that are involved with immorality, but they never said you need to follow the Jewish diet code. In fact, later on, when Paul is writing to the believers, he makes comment to them that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but rather it's of the internal righteousness. And yet it was a problem that people kept on bringing up the dietary codes and, and this whole issue. When Paul writes to the people, uh, to the preacher, Titus, he makes sure that he even makes the same comment that Titus, you know, there are some people that they are just stuck on this idea of dietary codes. And in fact, he says, to the pure person, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled in their hearts, unbelieving, to them, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. Oh, that's a, that is an absolute slap in their face. That if you're relying upon all these external rituals and rules, you're really not clean of the spirit and of the heart. They profess to know God, but in their works they deny him. Being abominable, disobedient, disqualified. Well, that's why Paul is writing to the believers in Colossae. He knew that these false teachers were dangerous, presenting themselves to be of God. They really were not. They don't even know God. And yet they still had all of these, these um, standards, legalistic rules that they put upon the people. They said that what you need to do is you need to eat certain foods and certain meats. You need to be respectful of the holy days. Literally, the word is of the feast days. And we know that in the Old Testament, there were several feast days that the Jews were supposed to observe and the three major ones that the, all the Jews were supposed to regularly observe were the ones that we list here, Passover, Pentecost, the Feast of, the Feast of Tabernacles. And so even though these were observed by the Jews, they, they weren't necessarily called to the, the Gentiles weren't called to observe them. But these Judaizers were saying to the Gentiles in Colossae, you need to be like us. You need to do what we do or you're not going to be spiritual. Therefore, you need to observe Jewish feasts and certain days. Well, the idea again goes back to you will be godly if you do what we do. If you don't do what we do, even though it's part of our tradition, our Jewish culture, you have to do it or you're not going to be as godly as us. That wasn't the only area that they dealt with. He talks about here in this text, he talks about not only they judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of the feast days or of the new moon, which we assume that based on the book of Numbers, that whole idea that their lunar calendar, they were to offer sacrifice at the first, uh, new, uh, the first day of the new month based upon the new moon. 
to make observances, as well he talks about the Sabbath days. All of these are seeming to come out of that Jewish culture, that Jewish regulations that were part of the Old Testament law, which has been put away, but now some of these folk are insisting the believers still need to follow it. And so the Old Testament, we know very clearly, it talked a lot about Sabbath days. We knew that the legalist of Jesus' day the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they were very, very critical of Jesus whenever he violated the Sabbath to even do good for others. And yet, here they are, now years after Christ, after hearing the teachings of the gospel, there are some coming to the church and saying that you need to observe total day of rest. You need to not do work. You need not to to do any healing or helping of other people on the Sabbath day. And insisting that the believers who are following Christ go back to pre-Christ regulations. And so Paul's writing and saying these people are dangerous. Now, before I go much farther, let me pause for a second, because some of you may be thinking in your mind, well, why is it that we don't observe the Sabbath? Is Sunday the new Sabbath? Actually, it's not. It's the first day of the week. But the, in the New Testament, there was a transition away from the Sabbath day. Let me give you several facts real quick that are important. The Sabbath, if you go back to the Old Testament, it was a sign of the covenant with the Jews. It was very Jewish-oriented design for them to display just like the dietary laws, just like the circumcision, that this was part of their thing with God. That this was their, their observance in following the covenant. As well, the New Testament never repeats, ever in the epistles, beyond, beyond the, the uh, book, of, uh, book of Acts and beyond, never is there a command that we observe the Sabbath. That Old Testament command, keep holy the Sabbath, not repeated in the New Testament uh, epistles. In the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 7, it does specifically, (coughs) excuse me, it says that the New Testament believers had started to worship on the first day of the week, the day that Jesus Christ resurrected, the day of the week, that Sunday, and seems to be their practice in the book of Acts that they transitioned from Sabbath to a Sunday worship. The Jerusalem Council, when we already saw, they wrote, they never mentioned anything about the dietary laws. They never mentioned anything about keeping the Sabbath as well. It's not something that was required. In the New Testament, there are several times that the writer of different epistles will list out certain sins or violations that the believers are doing. Never one of them. Never is there a time that breaking the Sabbath is ever mentioned in, in uh, the list of things that you need to correct. The Church of Corinth, though it had did, done all kinds of difficult and different types of practices that needed to be rebuked, never once does that epistle deal with to returning to the Sabbath idea. Then we go and say, okay, Romans chapter 14 makes it very clear that it is the personal choice of the individual to observe the Sabbath or not to observe the Sabbath. It is one of those issues that is Christian liberty, And then as well, we also know this fact that in church history, very, very, very early in church history, all the church fathers from the earliest days that we have record on through talk about Sunday worship, not Sabbath worship. And despite all these facts, there were those who were all of a sudden coming to the church of Colossae and say, you've got to observe the Sabbath, you've got to worship on the Sabbath, or your worship does not count. And so Paul is warning about these people, that they're imposing this legalism. In fact, when we think about today's form of legalism, 
It's probably not so much the same as what they ran into in Bible days, but there's a lot of similarities. We have people today that talk about you need to observe certain religious rituals or liturgies or your worship is invalidated. It has to be done a certain way or a certain phrase or certain, certain quotes or creeds need to be stated. We have some who are very legalistic when it comes to you have to wear a certain style of clothing or colors of clothes or length of clothes or you're not godly. You know, it's got to be, you know, the long sleeve, if it's short sleeve, you're, you're very worldly. And so that standard that is set by the groups, which sometimes are set by individuals or the group as a whole. We have others that would say, you can't eat or drink certain foods. You know, it ha- can't be meats on Fridays. You can't drink coffee. You can't drink anything with caffeine in it. Or there are some who say the wearing of jewelry. Even in this church's earliest years before it was Faith Baptist, but there was groups meeting, in the very early years, there was one pastor who taught in, the, in this assembly at one time, taught that wearing wire rim glasses was a sign of, of being worldly and ungodly, and you can't be spiritual if you do wire rim glasses. There, there, people get caught up with this whole idea of if somebody wears jewelry, then that person can't be spiritual. They need to be very plain. And then there's others who say if they don't wear jewelry, they're not very spiritual. So it goes back and forth. Hairstyles are often a choice and in this conversation. Some form of technology. There are churches that's that, and peoples that say if you have a TV, you're not godly. If you use any kind of modern uh, recording devices or cameras or computers or cell phones, you're not godly. You're not spiritual. If your church uses any kind of uh, large screens, it shows that you are obviously getting away from the truth. And so there's all kinds of different types of impositions and, and rules that people would put in, even to the point that if you don't worship and have a church service at a certain time on a Sunday or X amount of services that day or a midweek service on a Wednesday, you know, something's wrong. You know, something's, you know, the the question, your spirituality. And so that legalism is extremely dangerous. And it's a problem. And he points out the problem for that back in there that day, and it still is today. He talks about it in verse 16. He makes it very clear that the legalism really fosters a critical spirit amongst believers. A critical spirit amongst those who are promoting this legalism. He says literally, he says, let no man judge you or stop letting people condemn you over and over and over again. Those who are making the condemnation are the legalists. They're making the judgment, which seems to be that the idea is that these people, their whole goal is to check others out. They are looking for faults in other individuals. They are the ones who are going about and making themselves as a standard of godliness and they're going to observe, they're going to evaluate, they're going to investigate everybody else as if they've been God assigned to be the ones to keep everybody else in line. And he says that's a danger of this legalism is that some come puffed up and they start becoming critical and judgmental of all other types of folk. Even good people can get caught up with this. I think I told you the story. I know I had it in my notes, but I don't remember if I carried it through or not in a message here in the last months. But true story of two of the greatest preachers of the mid-1800s. Dio Moody in Chicago, C.H. Spurgeon in London. Moody is in Chicago visiting, and he wants to meet Spurgeon. 
So he makes an arrangement to go to his home so they could meet for the first time. And when they comes to um, Moody coming to the door, he knocks on the door and Spurgeon opens the door. And Spurgeon was well known to be, to be one who smoked cigars. And at that time, again, they didn't know what we know about the uh, dangers of the nicotine and things of that sort. And it was very common practice in Europe especially that people were going to be smoking cigars. And it was very common part of, of uh, Spurgeon's personal practice. And Moody, when he saw that, he stepped backwards down the stoop steps. And he says, how can a man of God like you preach the word of God when you smoke something like that? That was his opening introduction. Spurgeon stepped down towards him and he reached out his hand and he patted Moody on his very rotund belly. And he says, the same way a man of God can preach the word of God with such a big belly. You see, there's a, there's a tendency amongst all of us to become quickly critical of others who are different from us based upon are they following what we think they should do. I was uh, recently here, uh, in the last couple of weeks, we had another couple sinkholes show up on our property. And uh, one day I went out, I wanted to talk to those who were working on the sinkhole. And in the course of the conversation, I wanted to talk with them about their, about their salvation. So I asked the question if, of the men who were there, if they knew for sure if they, when they die, if they're going to go to heaven. The one man who was operating the equipment, he kind of looked at me and was paused for, uh, for several seconds. And he says, you know, that's an offensive question to a lot of people. They wouldn't like being asked that. And uh, since he was running the backhoe, I was a little bit hesitant to you know, what he's going to do next. And so I made the comment. I said, well, I didn't mean to offend you if I did, but I'm really concerned about your soul and whether you're going to spend life in eternity. He then got the serious look off his face. He smiled. He said, I do know the Lord. And he and his partner then proceeded to tell me about when they came to know the Lord. And I asked each one in particular, you know, uh, several of the details just for that idea of knowing if they for sure understood. And very clear testimonies. The one who was running the backhoe, he said, I want to tell you something, preacher. He said, I grew up in a church in this area. And in this church, he says, it was a very legalistic church. It had all the rules and regulations about clothing and this and that. And, and all kinds of observations that you could not be saved unless you followed their criteria. And he made this comment that, he, that, uh, that I've not forgotten and every day I've been thinking about since. He says, in all the years I was in that church... He said, I never met anyone in that church who had ever lost their salvation. But every one of them knew of many others who lost their salvation because they no longer kept the rules. It was interesting he said that as he went on to explain that the one thing that he found to be very, very evident within that congregation was a judgmental spirit of other people, evaluating and judging other people. You and I ought not to do that. Staying away from legalism, one of the big reasons is we don't want to create or develop a critical judgmental spirit within our hearts. But there was another danger to the legalism that is mentioned in verse 17, where he talks about, after saying about the meats, the drinks, the holy days, the new moons, the Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body... The main thing is Jesus Christ. I'm converting that into this statement. Legalism focuses on conforming to or with others instead of focusing on Jesus Christ. I want to fit into the crowd, but it doesn't make any difference what my relationship with Christ. In, in fact, let's put it this way. He's talking about a shadow of things to come. And he's saying that the real thing, the real body, the real concern is not those shadows 
but Jesus Christ. Now we would understand what that means. When we were little kids, we were enamored with shadows. Maybe you played shadow tag with others. I do that sometimes when the grandkids who are little, the littler ones play tag, that if you step on the shadow, all of a sudden you feel that they, they pain and I act like, man, that hurt that they stepped on my shadow. It, it, it's not the real thing. The real thing is the body. The shadow isn't what we dress up. The shadow isn't what we fix up. The shadow isn't even what we hug or we relate to. We relate to the reality. And in this text he's saying that the legalists often make the shadow, the image, as important or more important than the real shadow caster, the reality of life. And let me see if I can put it this way, by your chart. The legalists, with all their regulations, they would say, keep the Passover, keep the Passover. But they forget the reality. The reality is Christ is our Passover. They would say this, eat certain foods, eat certain foods. That's only a shadow. That Christ is the bread of life. They would say, you need to have the circumcision of the flesh. Well, we talked about this last week, how he says, Jesus Christ is the one who circumcised the heart. They, some would even emphasize, oh, you must have the water baptism to, to enhance and to complete your salvation. Well, wait a minute, the water baptism is a mere shadow of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's the reality that saves. There are some who would say, light candles. Christ is the light of the world. There are some who say, hey, communion. you got to take communion to get rid of your sin. No, the communion is just a shadow of the real shedding of the blood and, and by, broken body of Jesus Christ that brought the new covenant. Jesus Christ is the reality. All these other things that often get elevated are mere shadows. And you and I, we realize this, that when it comes to life as we get older, the shadow is meaningless. We don't hug our kids' shadow, we hug our kids. We fix up, as I said, we, we address our bodies, we don't address our shadows. We need to focus on Christ, not all these images or symbolisms. That's the danger of legalism. Legalism creates a judgmental spirit as well. It gets people off of the reality of Jesus Christ. So I ask you these questions before we move on. When, when we look at this, do you tend to focus on certain rules and regulations or do you focus on your personal walk with the Lord? Do, do you seem to allow others to dictate standards by which you need to live by? Are you an individual that is quick to judge others, spiritually judge others, based upon their outward appearance, how they look, or whether they live up to your standards? Are you one who is, you criticize others because they don't do what you do, or they do things that you don't do? Are you an individual who are, is more content with fitting in with the crowd as opposed to, what about my heart? Oh, as long as everybody around me thinks I fit in, I don't care about my walk with the Lord. I don't care about God changing my heart and maturing me that way. Uh, I, I, I follow the rules. I follow the regulations. But my fellowship with Christ, oh, well, I can take it or leave it. Are you an individual who is so stuck on these traditions and these rules that as time goes by, you can't make adjustments or changes. 
that, that really make no difference or could improve your service for Christ. I was here reading the story of an individual in this eastern Pennsylvania area. Years ago, he's a Quaker man, and you understand Quakers at that, in that period of time, they were pacifists. No guns, no self-defense. This man woke up at night. His family's in bed, sleep upstairs with him. Heard some noise downstairs. Went down the back step, and he was looking into the area, and he could see somebody was was thieving through some of his items in the house, and he was concerned about his family. So he went out the back door, ran to his neighbor's house, got his neighbor's gun, came back in through the front door with a loud noise, and confronted that thief, that robber, with this gun, and made this comment: "Friend." You are in the direct line of, the, of, of fire if I'm going to discharge this gun in the next moment. I would recommend, friend, that you move out of here very quickly before I shoot this gun. With that, the thief ran and got away. Now, that Quaker was able to make some adjustments for something that was of a greater necessity. Are you able to make some adjustments in your life for the necessity of walking with Christ? serving Christ to the best of your ability, that's not what the legalists could do. In fact, they were stifling the believers from wanting to serve Christ even more by heaping up all these rules and regulations. But that wasn't the only problem. There's a second ism that is a problem here. The second ism is, we said legalism, number one. Number two, mysticism. Mysticism. Look what he says in verse 18. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Let's stop there. What he's referring to is this idea of spiritual experiences. Having something supernatural, something dramatic and dynamic happen to you. And so this was such a serious situation in the church that he says they were promoting this to the point of defrauding other believers of their reward. Let no man beguile you, literally defraud, literally to declare you unfit disqualified of your reward is the idea. And it, so it gives, that, it gives that picture of, oh, well, like an athlete. Do you remember the story of Jim Thorpe? 1912, went to the Olympics when they first renewed, and he competed. As a young man, he competed in the, in the decathlon and the pentathlon, both within a couple-day period, and won them both, competing against all the world's athletes. But then he was stripped of his medals, his, reward, his awards later. Because a year or two before that, while he was in the Carlisle Indians College uh, here in Pennsylvania, during that summer, he had no job. He had no way to get a job because the Indians weren't allowed to do that. So he played baseball for a team that paid him for his room and board only, just so he had a place to live during those weeks that the school was closed. But according to the rules, he had been paid for sports. Therefore, he was disqualified and stripped of his Olympic medals, even though he is still recognized as probably the greatest singular athlete of the 20th century. I read about somebody, <coughs> not read, I saw the story of um, last weekend. They had the U.S. Amateur Golf Tournament here in the United States. It's the last day. Hole number 18, two men are tied going into that last hole. And the one individual, the Argentinian who was there, who was in competition, he had hit the ball and it went into the bunker, into the sand, right before the, uh, the, the um, uh, what would we call it, where, the, where the, you do the, 
The green, the greens. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, Pastor John. To the greens. And so when they got to that spot, his caddy stepped down into the sand and touched the sand just to see how damp it was. Immediately, immediately the judge came over and he was given a penalty point and he lost the tournament based upon his caddy touching the sand. Disqualified. All of a sudden, no longer able to compete. That's exactly the word he's using in this text. He's saying, beware of those people. Don't let them disqualify you from your reward. What reward? Is it the reward of doing service now so as to be rewarded at the Bema seat? Or is he referring to all the benefits that you are experiencing right now, the prize that you have in this life, of all that Christ has done for you in the sense that he has completed you and given you all that you need? All of a sudden, they say to you, you don't have enough? You don't have the reward of Christ. You don't have all the works of Christ. You have to, and, and they discourage you from following Christ. I think the latter is probably what they're saying, is that they're saying to the individuals, you aren't spiritual enough unless you have my experience. And so it's a really dangerous idea. Mysticism back then, as we read in this text, it included interacting with spirit beings. He talks about how the worshiping of angels. And we understand that the Gnostics, the people of those days, they would have contact with spiritual guides. They promoted the idea that you needed to communicate with some being in the spiritual realm who would guide you. They even used, uh, they even called the Holy Spirit another one of those spiritual guides and other angels, Michael and Gabriel and others, that they would turn to or try to communicate with. It was a very common practice and promotion amongst the Gnostics. And they ended up with that idea that you're worshiping or exalting the angels. There was that mystical contact with the spirit world. There was also the mystical contact of getting other revelations. He makes the comment, he says, all of a sudden, you are uh, entering into those areas, you're walking into the ideas, entering into a spiritual chamber or a spiritual um, uh, facility that you're going into uh, things that you have not seen. With that idea, it seems to be that you're claiming to have visions and dreams and special contact from the other side, from the spiritual realm where, where God or Jesus or one of these emanations is speaking to you and giving you all kinds of tidbits of information. And so he says this is a mystic thing that's happening amongst those in the church. This mysticism isn't unique to the church of Colossae. There have been, since time on, since uh, that time on, there have been those who have claimed special contact with saints. Special communications with the Virgin Mary, where all of a sudden she reveals news to some specific or special individuals who are exalted above others. There are some who would say that they and they alone have been given some new revelations, some new visions, some new explanations of Scripture. There are those who would even today... That they say that they have the ability to do miracles and experience them. That they can slay in the spirit hundreds of people who are in the church service. All of a sudden, if they wave their coat or their hand, they have the mystical ability to knock people down physically because of the power that is within them that they and they alone possess or those like them. This mystical idea of being able to know the mind of God very clearly through some type of communication 
interpretation beyond scriptures that you can tell the will of God for other people because God gives you special insights. There are those who are mystics who claim that they have the gift of tongues, which was a biblical gift, which was operational during the book of Acts, but 1 Corinthians makes it clear that with the completion of the New Testament, it was going to cease, and yet they claimed, even back then, they claimed that they were special individuals, that they had that gift. And now with the renewal of the Pentecostal charismatic movement, the gift of tongues has been promoted once again since 1948 with the uh, Azusa Street meetings and everything that has followed since with that idea that you aren't spiritual unless you speak with tongues. You aren't one of the haves. You're one of the have-nots. Well, I'm one of the have-nots like most of you. But uh, that's because we don't accept that idea that this mysticism, this, this special spiritual gifting is going on that only a few people are given these gifts to power to heal or to do all these things. Well, that mysticism is very prevalent today. In fact, it was prevalent for a long time. And he is saying in this book, he is saying there's dangers. It was there in Corinth, uh, in Colossae, where they were having that special power, special abilities. And he points out the, uh, the dangers. One, you defraud other believers. Literally, you discourage other believers, telling them that they're not good enough, that they can experience all that Christ wants for them in this life. They're incomplete, even though they're a Christian. You're defrauding. You're disqualifying other believers from service. He says something else, that those who do this with their false humility, they're actually acting in pride. Look at the words that he used. Voluntary humility. That idea that I can't approach God in and of myself, I need to go through another spirit being. It sounds very humble. It sounds very, very, you know, positive in the sense that I'm not good enough. And yet, all of a sudden he says, they do this, this voluntary humility and the worshiping of the angels, vainly puffing up their own fleshly mind. That the result is that all of a sudden they are making themselves to be better than others. I have the gifts, you don't. I can heal, you can't. And he says instead of being the spiritual giants that they pretend to be, they're actually spiritual pygmies. So it creates a false pride and confidence but what it does is it is worshiping of the spirit beings, which we know is a violation of the Bible. We're not supposed to have other gods before God. We know that the New Testament clears, clearly says there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We don't need an angel. We don't need a spiritual guide. We need Jesus Christ. He is the only one. And so it creates a false worship, an idolatry, which is ungodly. But the greatest danger is this. They take the focus off Jesus Christ. Look what he says. Not holding up the head. That's the literal translation. The literal idea is that you're constantly not holding up Jesus Christ. Not exalting him. Instead of focusing on Christ, they focus on, oh, my experience. My, my supernatural power. My ability to do this. The, the pizzazz, the wow, the, the experience it gives me. The, the good feeling. And he says, wait a minute. You need to be holding up Christ. Remember, he is creator. He has completed you. He is to be preeminent. In fact, he goes on. Watch these phrases. Who alone is the head? And, and mark it. The. 
head. That is Jesus Christ, who alone nourishes the body. The word nourish means to completely underwrite, to produce a great concert or some, some town need. It's the idea of a philanthropist providing everything that is needed. It's outfitting the ship. Jesus Christ nourishes the body, not some mystical, magical experience. He goes on, he says, who alone knits us together, who unites us, who alone is the one who increases or builds up with the building up of God, as he mentions in the last phrase. And we understand that. John made it very clear already that as he recorded the words of Jesus, without me you can do nothing. I'm the vine, you're the branches. You need me. If you Only if you abide in me can you bear fruit, and then more fruit, and much fruit. It's all about Christ. But the mystics all of a sudden take the attention off of Christ and put the attention on a spirit an experience. And he says, that's dangerous. Beware of them. You know, you and I in this modern day, we need to beware of some of those modern influences that have crept into Christianity. The charismatic movement, the the emphasis on tongues, the idea that some have special revelation beyond the scriptures. What they're intentionally doing is they are exalting an experience over the living and written word of God. The word of God, Jesus Christ, the word of God, our Bible, is to be guiding our lives. We are to make these our preeminent guides, not some mystical, magical experience, which may not even be truth or dealing with a true spirit of truth. So he warns about legalism. He warns then about the mysticism. Then he gives us the last one that we'll cover quickly. He talks about asceticism. Asceticism. Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of this world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to those ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and the neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. What's he talking about? He's talking about that idea that, you know, even though we're supposed to practice self-discipline, keep our body under subjection, even though we're supposed to separate from the world, which we all know, we understand, we're supposed to be doing, the ascetics were individuals that took this to an extreme. They were individuals that they took a biblical truth and expanded it to a point that it was no longer, it was, it was no longer even recognizable as truth. What they did is they denied all kinds of normal life experiences. To say, we deny these normal life experiences and that'll make us more godly. Which was a falsehood. Which was not what the Bible was teaching. The asceticism was not uncommon in that day. Even in the Jewish sector, there was a group that was called the Essenes that you've read about. They are there in the time of Jesus Christ. They were a a group of Jewish peoples, mostly males, who went into a communal living. They practiced celibacy. They were individuals who kept some of the dietary code. They did not go to the temple and worship. They were isolationists that lived in the wilderness. Some thought John the Baptist had some dealings with him. We don't know. But these people had all these rules and regulations that you're supposed to keep apart. In fact, for their initiatory rites, you ate by yourself all your meals for the first two or three years before you were allowed to have a meal with anybody else. All kinds of different ideas. 
very famous because the Dead Sea Scrolls, which gives us a lot of the um, updated uh, copies of the scriptures, they were done and founded in the Qumran community. But the Essenes were there. So this idea of asceticism, it wasn't something that was unknown. The Jews knew about it because of an element in their community. The Gnostics, we've already talked about, they were ascetics in many ways. They taught that anything of the, of the body, anything of the world was bad. Material is bad. Spiritual is good. Jesus Christ didn't have a body because the body is bad. He came as a spirit, so he never really died. He never really came in the flesh. That corrupt doctrine led them to come to a point where they had strict dietary codes. They promoted celibacy, many of them. They promoted other types of deprivations of the body. This grew in time into what we see in church history that was very popular for a number of years, monastics. Monasticism, a form of asceticism. And you know all about this. You've seen films. You read about people who went into the, into the convents and the monasteries and how they would have isolation from society how they would take vows of poverty and celibacy. They wouldn't talk for extended periods of times. Silence was the norm. You've heard about that story about the one who became a monk, and after the end of the first year, he met with the, the head monk of the monastery, and he says, do you have anything to say? Food terrible. A year goes by, and they meet again. And it's total silence for that year. They meet again. And he comes for his annual interview, talks to the head monk, and he says, bed hard. Goes another year, total silence, there does all the work and the labor. The third year he comes up and he says, do you have anything to say? And the head monk asks, and this man responds, clothes horrible. With that, the head monk says, that's it, we're kicking you out. You have nothing good to say, all you do is complain. Well, that idea, that story is that they would live that way. They would live wearing the same clothes that were very abrasive for weeks and weeks and months, even years on end, just to show that they were denying the flesh. They would abuse themselves. You've seen the films, you've seen the shows of people who would take whips and they would whip themselves or they would tie around their bodies different barbed wires or ropes to create pain and suffering so as to show that they are really godly individuals focusing on God and enduring pain. They would have these extended fasts and sleep deprivations, all in the design of saying that we are individuals who are really, really focused on God. The saints, the pillar saints, people who would climb up on these pillars and live up there exposed to the weather for weeks and months and have just little bit tidbits of food brought up to them and become now malnourished. But they were doing this so they could be closer to God. All of this, this asceticism, you know what amazes me? Is that grew, especially in the, in the early church history in Middle Ages, that grew to be huge, even though Paul writes that this is wrong. Even though Paul warns about it in Colossians chapter 2. If, if you look at Colossians 2, you see exactly what he's saying about that type of thing. He makes the comment, he says, that you are, who are dead in sin, you're dead in Christ, how is it that you allow yourselves to be brought back to be subject unto ordinances or basic rules that these men are putting forth. He, he makes the comment, he says, they say, touch not, taste not, handle not. It's all this negative. Don't, 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 don't. And it all deals with what we need for our everyday life. 
The, it could be the, we know the food. We know the beverages are needed. The idea of handle not, is he talking about possessions? Some think that's what they did, is they denied personal property, personal possessions. Is it talking about handle not? The idea of not having physical intimacies, saying that you shouldn't have any type of marital relationships? That's what some conclude by the word handle not. But they're denying that which is very necessary and normal in this part of our existence while we're living here on earth dealing with those things that will eventually perish with the using therefore this life but they aren't going to be necessary in the next life and so he makes the comedy says okay in this life you're dealing with necessities but the ascetics say don't have you know deny yourself deny yourself of those items and to the point where, in verse 23, while the neglecting of the body literally is the idea treating your body harshly, abusing your body, mutilating your body. And so that was going on in Colossae. Very common to the monastics. Very common to the, the Essenes. Very common to what the Gnostics we've already talked about. And then he says, this is what's happening, but here's the problem. They're promoting a man-made religion, not a God-inspired thought. He makes that comments where he says in verse 22, which are, which are to perish after the commandments and doctrines of men. The commandments seems to be the idea of spoken and the doctrines, the written rules of men. And so he says, these don't come from God. Well, that fits what Paul writes later. The Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter days, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed not to things from God, but to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from meats. And so this isn't what God said. All things are to be received with thanksgiving. But these men, these ascetics, were making these rules. And they did it. With uh, these man-made rules, not only did they, did they create a new authority, but they promoted a false piety. He says that they're doing this with a show of wisdom, a display, a report, a rumor that these guys are really wise. But in reality, he says, it's a worship of your self-will. It's a worship of your, your own humility. It's an exaltation of, look at me. Look what I am suffering. How I am paining myself and agonizing myself. Aren't I spiritual for all that I'm putting my body through? That false humility. humility. But then they, they, they don't really work. What they're promoting doesn't work in deterring the desires. He makes that comment in verse 23. While neglecting, abusing, treating harshly your body. Why? So as to deny normal, natural desires for food, drink, sex, sleep. He says, not in any honor of value to the satisfying of the flesh. Let me give you a different translation. Another English translation that makes it even clearer. He says, these indeed have an appearance of, of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They don't work. It doesn't make a difference. It doesn't take away the desires, the cravings, the, the, the interest. That's his point. His point is that these self-denials do not decrease or eliminate the temptations. In fact, they don't help the believer to learn how to handle what he should do with overeating. What should he do with lustful thoughts? What should he do with laziness? They, they, they don't teach you how to deal with it in a biblical sense. They actually promote even more self-indulgence, which we all know by history. We know that what he predicted here was absolutely true. 
that many of those who in these public scenarios portrayed themselves as denying the flesh, they themselves gave in to the flesh an awful lot in secret. <coughs> Martin Luther in his writings talks about when he was in a monastery as a young man, it was a community of men. He says, and yet in this community of men, there was still natural urges and desires that would arose. We would have lustful thoughts. <coughs> he writes that they were instructed that whenever they had a lustful thought, they were to throw themselves into the thorn bushes that were along the walls. And that way they were to, to show that they're getting rid of the sinful thoughts. Well, I, I don't know, you know what it showed other than it revealed to everybody you were having dirty thoughts. Because you'd be beaten, bruised, and bloody from the thorns. And it would show that to other people. Well, whoa, look at how you're willing. But it wouldn't and didn't, as Luther writes, it really didn't deal with the issue. It may have just momentarily focused our attention on cuts and bruises, but it didn't deal with the temptation, with the desires. And he says that's what asceticism is. Asceticism is worthless. So we bring this all together. And we came to the end of the chapter. And he's going to build upon it in chapter 3. But what does it all mean for you and me today? Before we go any further, what does it mean for you and me today? Several thoughts come to my mind. Remember, we are completing Christ. That means he has totally outfitted us for eternity. He has given us all we need for this life. As such, we should not get caught up in these false ideas. Even though they're popular. It is popular to have a mystical, supernatural experience. It's popular to follow rules and regulations. It's popular to all of a sudden beat yourself and deny and to make yourself look spiritual in order to gain God's favor. It may be popular, but it's not right. We need to remember to trust in Christ alone. Jesus saves. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by him. I think this. We should make sure we do not let these false teachings ever creep into our church, into our homes. We should do everything we can to protect that, to protect the truth. We have no reason to be watching TV programs where they're promoting such false ideas. We have no reason listening to those TV preachers that may be good in some of the things they give us in some ideas, but they promote mystical ideas and spiritual activities that aren't biblical. We need to defend the greatness of grace. And it's all about grace. It's the grace of God. It's the work of God in our hearts. <clears throat> Not what we do or what we experience. This is to, the most tremendous thought to me. If you are a believer, you and I should be ever more grateful that we don't have to rely upon these isms. We don't have to follow these rules. We don't have to beat ourselves up. We don't have to, to, to isolate from society. We should be thankful it's Christ that saves us, that gives us fellowship with the Father, and be ever so grateful that we live in the age of grace. We should be doing this. We should focus on our personal walk with Christ, our communion with Him, our reading His Bible, not looking for an experience, our getting into His Word and His Word into us, abiding in Him. More and more and more. So that he becomes preeminent in our lives. My friend, make Christ preeminent this week. As your creator, as your completer, go to him. Stay close to him. Pray to him. Walk with him. And don't get caught up with all these isms. Get caught up with Christ, your Savior and Lord. Father, help us 
to live to the glory of Jesus Christ, to, to live in this time of grace in a way that we are magnifying your majesty, your greatness, your goodness, your mercies. Thank you for giving us your saving grace. Thank you for making it so easy that it's even open to little children like us. We give you praise. We give you glory. Help us to magnify and make Christ preeminent this week. I pray in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. God bless you.